Our passage today we'll be looking at together is in Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 53. As we continue through the Gospel of Mark together, I hope that the theme of the songs we sang was clear to you that the name of Christ is to be exalted. We are to reverence it and worship his name. There is great power in his name. And this great ancient of days that we read about in Daniel and who we just sang about is worthy of our honor and our reverence. But if we look at our passage today, we do not see reverence, honor, and glory given to Jesus. In fact, we see mockery. We see accusations. We see denial from his own disciple. Our passage today is going to point us to some incredible truths, not only about Jesus, but some sobering truths about ourselves. In fact, our passage today is going to be looking at two different trials. I don't know if you're a fan of 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 courtroom dramas. We're going to have a bit of a courtroom drama today. Two different courtrooms. In the first portion of our passage today, we're going to see Jesus on trial. And then, following that, we see Peter on trial. Mark, in fact, sets up this contrast in verse 53. If we look there briefly before we jump into our passage, we've just seen the arrest and betrayal of Jesus Christ in the garden. In verse 53, it says, They led Jesus away to the high priest, and with him were assembled all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes. There's trial number one. Verse 54, And Peter followed him afar off, even into the palace of the high priest. And he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. As Mark sets the stage for this passage, he wants us to see these two trials. First, Jesus' trial, and then Peter's trial. And in contrasting these two trials in this passage, we learn an important lesson. Let's continue reading in our passage today and see what God has for us. We'll pick it up in verse 55 as we continue the story. So we look at Jesus' trial. It says, Now the chief priests and all the council sought for witness against Jesus to put him to death, and they found none. For many bear false witness against him, but their witness agreed not together. And there arose certain ones and bear false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But neither so did their witness agree together here. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witnesses say against thee? But he held his peace and answered nothing. And again the high priest asked him and said unto him, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. And the high priest rent his clothes and said, What need any further witnesses? You've heard the blasphemy which ye, what, what, what think ye? And they all condemned him to be guilty of death. And some began to spit on him, and to cover his face, and to buffet him, and to say to him, Prophesy. And the servants did strike him with the palms of their hands. And as Peter was beneath in the palace, 
there cometh one of the maids of the high priest. And when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked upon him and said, And thou was also was with Jesus of Nazareth. But he denied it, saying, I know not, neither understand I what thou sayest. And he went out into the porch, and the cock crew. And the maid saw him again, and be, began to say to them that stood by, This is one of them. And he denied it again. And a little after, they that stood by said again to Peter, Surely thou art one of them, for thou art a Galilean. Thy speech agreeeth thereto. But he began to curse and to swear, saying, I know not this man of whom you speak. And the second time the cock crew. And Peter called to mind the word that Jesus said unto him before the cock crows twice, Thou shalt deny me three times. And when he thought thereon, he wept. So that's the Lord to guide us as we look into his word this morning. Lord, as we look at your boldness in the face of opposition, we see our timidity and our fear in the face of Peter. Lord, we rejoice that in our weakness you stood firm, being the sacrifice for our sins. And Lord, I pray that you would guide our hearts as we look at your example, and especially your example in our weakness. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Today we're going to be looking at a tale of two trials. As we saw in our passage today, there was a trial of Jesus and a trial of Peter. Two very different trials. Jesus was before the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders of the day. This is at midnight. They, they, they form an, an emergency assembly of the religious leaders, and Jesus is standing there in the house of the high priest, standing trial. And then as Peter lays out for us, or as, as Mark lays out for us, Peter is outside that house. He's in the courtyard, standing around the fire, and he is held at trial, not with a high priest, but with a servant girl. And his response is much more different than Jesus's. I want us to consider these trials one at a time to see what we learn from them. We see, first of all, Jesus on trial. As Jesus stands on trial in front of the Sanhedrin, we see very quickly that we're in sort of a kangaroo court. It's midnight. The high priests have gathered together. The high priests and the Sanhedrin have gathered together. And we find also that they've also gathered together a bunch of witnesses at midnight. Right? Implying they probably had these guys on, on retainer. They're, they're ready to call them in. The Sanhedrin have already decided that Jesus must die. And now they just have to come up with evidence to match that verdict. Look with me in verse 55. So the chief priests and the whole council seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. They weren't seeking testimony both, both against Jesus and for Jesus. They were seeking testimony against Jesus. They had already decided his, his, the verdict, the penalty, death. But they could not find testimony to match that verdict. And many witnesses, in fact, come forward. In fact, so many witnesses were ready to go in the middle of the night. It points to the fact that these were handpicked by the Sanhedrin themselves. But I want to notice two things about these false witnesses. Number one, that they are false. Verses 56 and 57, Mark makes it very clear these are false witnesses. Witnesses are not telling the truth. 
And we also find out that their testimonies contradict. We see in verse 56, later on in verse 59, their testimonies did not agree with one another. He mentions one particular accusation they bring against him in verse 58. This particular false witness stood up and said, well, I heard him say that he will destroy the temple made with hands, and in three days he'll build another not made with hands. Now, as with most witnesses, there's an element of truth and mixed with error. And while Jesus never claimed that he, that he would destroy the temple, he did say something similar to this in John chapter 2, verse 19, where Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. But he was referring not to the physical temple, but the temple of his body. That soon after, three days after his death, he would rise again. So while they didn't understand his words, it's ironic that the false witnesses were unknowingly pronouncing the gospel in this trial. In fact, people would mock Jesus for this claim when he was on the cross. In Mark chapter 15, verses 29 through 30, it says, those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. But again, as before, we find out that even here, their testimony did not agree. The witnesses were clearly lying. This trial was clearly rigged. But this does not stop the Sanhedrin. In verse 60, the high priest stands up and asks Jesus, so what do you have to say for yourself? Can you imagine if a judge did that? Contradicting testimonies, it's clear these stories are not lining up, and the judge stands up and says to the accused, well, what do you have to say for yourself? What do you, how do you defend yourself against these accusations? He's treating it as if these clearly false testimonies are legitimate. I think what we see clearly here is that Jesus is proving his innocence in this trial. It's clear they have nothing on him. In fact, in a just world, the Sanhedrin's attention should have been on the false witnesses here. According to Old Testament law, if a witness proved to be false, he would suffer the penalty of the accused. In Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 16, it says, If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days, and the judges shall inquire diligently. And if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and the rest shall hear and fear, and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity, it shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So if this is a just trial, these witnesses would be taking Jesus' penalty on themselves. But ironically, Jesus is taking their penalty on himself. And how does Jesus respond to all these false accusations? Look with me in Mark chapter 14, verse 61. He remained silent. He made no answer. Jesus was silent not only because he had no reason to defend himself against false accusations, but because he was the suffering lamb prophesied by Isaiah who opened not his mouth. As we read in Isaiah 53, verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that, that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And rather than proving him guilty, this trial proves Jesus' innocence. 
Everything that they're trying to accomplish against Jesus is being accomplished for Jesus as he stands there and, and proves his innocence through his silence. But then as we continue reading through this trial, Jesus declares his identity. Finally, the high priest asks him directly. When they couldn't get him on false accusations, the high priest asks him directly who he is. Verse 61, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed? Now, what's fascinating is Jesus has never answered this directly up until this point. The demons have clearly identified him, and Jesus would silence them. Peter identified him as the Christ in Mark chapter 8. Jesus clearly performs messianic signs, like riding into Jerusalem on a donkey and overturning the tables in the temple. Blind Bartimaeus called Jesus the son of David. But Jesus had never, up to this point, explicitly called himself the Messiah, the Son of God. But at this point, Jesus knew that his messianic plan and path led to suffering before victory. And now that his arrest, he had been arrested and his fate was sealed, he did not hold back. When the priest asked him if he was the Messiah, Jesus answers strongly, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. This is the point of clarity. While Peter would deny even association with this Jesus, Jesus himself clearly and explicitly identifies himself not only as the Messiah, but also as the Son of Man who presents himself before the Ancient of Days. As we read about in the book of Daniel, we just heard these passages this morning. I saw in the vision, night visions, behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom, and all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. This is what Jesus is saying here. The high priest says, are you the Christ? And clearly and explicitly, without, without beating around the bush at all, Jesus says, yes, I am the Christ, I am the Messiah, I am the Son of Man that da Daniel speaks about, coming on the clouds of heaven and exercising dominion over all peoples, nations, and languages. Jesus looks at them boldly and declares, you are about to kill the one who will be seated at the right hand of power. You are about to kill the one who will come with the clouds of heaven, the one we read about at the end of Scripture. Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Even these men, even the Sanhedrin, they will see him one day coming in the clouds of heaven, just as Jesus says here in this passage. This is who they are killing. This is who is standing before them. Not only is Jesus the innocent lamb, silent before his accusers, but he is the conquering king. He is the Messiah. He is the son of man. And through this trial, Jesus continues to prove himself to be the Messiah. And now the high priest has a decision to make. Either Jesus is lying and he is guilty of blasphemy, or Jesus is telling the truth and the high priest is guilty of blasphemy. At this point, we have to ask, is Jesus on trial or is the high priest on trial? Never before has Jesus been so straightforward about his identity, but here it is. There is no avoiding it. And now you must respond. How would you respond to this claim? You really only have two options. 
If Jesus is telling the truth, then you must place your faith in him alone. He is the Messiah. Rejection of this Christ would be blasphemy. If Jesus is lying, you must accuse Jesus of blasphemy. And there is no middle ground. Oftentimes we try to find that middle ground. Jesus was a good guy. Jesus was nice. He taught some good things. That's not how Jesus viewed himself. Jesus viewed himself as the Messiah, the Son of God. If Jesus is a blasphemer, is Jesus a blasphemer for his words? Or are you a blasphemer for rejecting his words? Well, we see the high priest's response. He tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You've heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? The high priest calls Jesus a blasphemer. He says, there's no more need for any witnesses. Out with the witnesses. We don't need them anymore because we have a confession straight from his mouth. We don't need to find an accusation against him. He is claiming to be the divine son of God, the Christ. What further witnesses do we need? And his enemies are saying this about him. And what they saw as, as blasphemy, the same question can be directed to us. If Jesus himself described himself as the Messiah, the Ancient of Days, the, the, the Son of Man, what further witness do you need? What further testimony do you need? And Jesus' clear declaration pushes them to a decision as the high priest asked, what is your decision? And I'd like to steal his words and ask you the same question. What is your decision? Given what Jesus has just said, what is your decision? Is Jesus a blasphemer? Or is Jesus the chosen Messiah sent to save you? You must choose. We see the decision of the Sanhedrin, verse 64. And all condemned him as deserving of death. We see that Jesus in his trial proves his innocence, declares his identity, and thirdly, he suffers our punishment. What happens next, Jesus fully expected. In fact, it was planned. While those around him felt like they had complete power, it was Jesus who was willingly subjecting himself to this. Verse 65, some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him and saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. Who's in charge here? Well, I'm sure the soldiers in the Sanhedrin think they're in charge, but if we look back in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6, we see this prophecy, I gave my back to those who beat me in my cheeks to those who tore out my beard, and I did not hide my face from scorn and spitting. This is prophesied before Jesus ever arrived on earth. In this midnight trial, we see Jesus fully reveal who he is. He proves his innocence, he declares his power, and he suffers our punishment. He stands victorious in the face of great evil. This is Jesus on trial. What about Peter? What about this disciple who claimed that he would die with Jesus? Outside in the courtyard of the high priest is a lone disciple. Peter is warming himself by the fire, and here he faces his own trial. See, first of all, in verse 66, he follows from a distance. Peter had followed Jesus further than any other disciple. We'll grant him that. In the garden, when he was betrayed, he ran forward and cut off the ear of the servant of the high priest, his daring attempt to show allegiance and loyalty. 
But when all said was done, he fled along with the rest of the disciples. But here, as Jesus is being led, led away, we find out that Peter is, is kind of sneaking along behind him. And he's so bold to actually make it into the courtyard. He's not so bold as to go into the house of the high priest to stand next to Jesus on his hour of trial. But he's, he's out in the courtyard, and it's a little cold, so he's making sure he's staying warm while he's being so bold. Perhaps his previous claims of devotion are ringing in his ears. Perhaps he's thinking of Jesus' words. After being rebuked by Jesus back in Mark chapter 8, when Jesus told Peter and all his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. But the best he can do is slinking around in the courtyard. Jesus is standing alone in trial while Peter is outside just trying to keep warm. And so the question arises, will Peter deny himself or will Peter deny the Christ? And we know the story. Peter denies his master. While Jesus is standing his ground in front of the high priest in the Sanhedrin, Peter stands trial in front of a servant girl of the high priest. We see denial number one in verses 66 through 68. He was below in the courtyard, and one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you, you also were the, with Nazar the Nazarene, Jesus. He denied it, saying, I don't, know what, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't understand what you mean. What? What did you say? And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crows the first time. Now, I, I don't know about you, but if Jesus said, when the rooster crows twice, you'll have denied me three times, that first crow would kind of be a warning bell, right? Peter is perhaps caught off guard by the servant girl. He feigns ignorance. Well, what are you talking about? Who? Jesus? What did you say? You know, our devotion to Christ isn't always measured in the big moments, the bold claims. It's measured in the little unexpected moments. Hey, do you know Jesus? What? Who? I'm not sure what you mean. The rooster crows the first time after this first denial. Surely he heard it, because by all accounts, Peter is the one who's recounting this story to Mark, writing it down. So he heard this first rooster crow. You'd think he'd remember Jesus' words and be warned. But no, the warning shot went right over his head. And we see denial number two in verses 69 through 70. The servant girl saw him and began to say to those around him, this man was one of them. But again, he denied it. So now the servant girl is starting to spread the news. She started to tell other people who are also standing around the fire that this guy was with Jesus. And again, Peter doubles down and denies it a second time. Then the third denial, verses 70 through 71, a little later, those who stood by said to Peter again, surely you are one of them. For you're a Galilean and your speech shows it. And he began to curse and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. The first denial, he is pleading ignorance about the question. What are you talking about? By the third denial, he is denying ignorance of Jesus at all. The bystanders are catching on. The heat is turning up. So as the heat turns up, Peter's response gets stronger. He invokes a curse, and he swears. Now, this isn't saying that Peter is hurling out cuss words. All right, that's not what's happening here. He's invoking a curse. 
And invoking a curse is involving a penalty if what is said isn't true. So either he's invoking a curse on himself, as some English versions render it, curses on me if I am lying, or invoking curses on the crowd. You are cursed for making such a false claim. But it's clear, he's getting stronger, he's getting bolder. He wants to shut this down right now. The weakness of Peter's flesh has taken him further than he ever thought possible. And while Jesus is being cursed for identifying himself as the Messiah, Peter curses to avoid being identified with the Messiah. He denies his master, and then finally in verse 72, he realizes his failure. Immediately, the rooster crows a second time, verse 72, and Peter remembered. Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times. And he broke down and he wept. All of his claims were empty. He could not bring himself to be faithful to his Savior. And the realization of this, remembering Christ's words, foretelling his denial, led him to break down and to weep. What a contrast between these two trials, between Jesus and Peter. And so let's ask ourselves, what, what are we to learn from these two trials? What, what does Mark, what does the Lord want us to take away from this passage? As we consider Peter's trial, you may think that you would stand firm for Jesus in the face of persecution. But ask yourself, what normal moments of life do you deny Christ in? In what ways do we distance ourselves from him when we're asked that unexpected question? When do we hide the fact that we're Christians when it isn't convenient to admit it? Peter is a guy who said, I will die with you. Even if every other disciple denies you, I will not. I will follow you to the end. He had bold claims. He had confidence in his own flesh. And when we saw last week, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. But he fell in the normal moments. Just a servant girl asking a simple question. And perhaps he thought he was ready for the big, bold stand. He wasn't ready for the unexpected inquiry. Notice how little opposition it takes for us to deny him. It really doesn't take much, does it? It was a servant girl. No one powerful. No one intimidating. We're ready for those types of people. But it's the unassuming, non-threatening. That's when we deny him the most. And notice also how much bolder and stronger Peter got with each denial. It started out small, claiming ignorance as if he didn't hear the question. But once you cross that line, you become bolder and stronger in your denial. And by the end of it, Peter is invoking curses. As you give in to your flesh, your flesh gets bolder. And notice the brokenness that follows. Once you find yourself out of the heat of the moment, and you have time to think, that's when the brokenness and shame comes. The realization that you, yet again, deny the Lord who has done so much for you. And so ask yourselves, what, what are the normal, everyday moments in which you deny your Savior? Teens, if you're in school, do you downplay the fact that you're a Christian? Do you hide the fact around certain friends? Do you value their acceptance more? And so it's not a servant girl asking the question, it's a peer, it's a friend. 
You conceal your identity as a Christian. You conceal your allegiance to Christ because you know it's going to put you in an uncomfortable spot. We do that, don't we? Adults. We live in a world where following Christ is increasingly unpopular. Which of your Christian beliefs do you downplay and hide when you know it would be unpopular to do so? What things do you conceal about your Christian faith? Be warned that the more you deny him, the easier it will get. And the more you deny him, the bolder you will get. Because once you start down that path, you have to be consistent. And you keep doubling down and doubling down. And the bolder it gets, and the easier it gets. But at the end of that road is brokenness. And when Peter heard that rooster crow, everything came crashing down. And you have to wonder, at that point, if whenever Peter saw a rooster, wonder if he, his eyes started twitching a little bit, perhaps. <laughs> but perhaps a vivid reminder of his failure. In fact, in American culture, we often see roosters depicted on weather vanes, right? Perched on top of a barn. You ever wondered where, why there's roosters on top of weather vanes? The origin of roosters on weather vanes is actually from church history. We find depictions of roosters on churches, on weather vanes on churches across Europe. Because in fact, the rooster at one point became a symbol of Christianity. And it was tied to the story of Peter and his denial. That they would depict it in the catacombs, they would depict it on top of churches. As a reminder that as Christians saw the rooster, they saw a call to repentance, a reminder to stay faithful to Christ in the face of opposition. Imagine if a rooster crowed every time you denied Christ. And yet we know that in a sense it does. Our God-given conscience cries out with every denial. As I heard one pastor put it, our conscience is not a cricket, it's a rooster, right? <laughs> will you deny self and follow Christ? Or will you deny Christ and follow self? And Peter's denial serves as a reminder for all of us. Will you stay faithful to Christ? But, you know, if you look at the stained glass window behind me, there's not a rooster depicted there, is it? It's a cross. And while the crow of the rooster reminds us of our failure, the cross reminds us of his accomplishment. And this is why the two trials are so important. Because as we look back on the trial of Jesus, we see him prove his innocence, declare his deity, and suffer for our punishment. Why did he have to go through all of that? Because we, like Peter, have failed our trial. We're just like Peter. And Peter needed the grace of Christ. Jesus had to stand trial because we fail ours. Jesus had to die for us because we cannot bring ourselves to die for him. Jesus received such a condemnation because we have condemned ourselves. And while we must be warned of our own weakness, and the symbol of that rooster reminds us of how fickle we are and how easily we deny Christ, that warning should point us to the cross. Because our hope lies not in our ability to stay true to Jesus, but in Jesus' ability to stay faithful for us. 
2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13 says, If we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. We read in Romans chapter 5, verse 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. If your own weakness and denial of Christ leaves you broken, then look to Jesus who stayed faithful to his mission so that he might save you. Your confidence is found not in your obedience, but in his. Your hope is found in his messianic accomplishment. Your forgiveness is found in his suffering on your behalf. In the tale of these two trials, we see Jesus' victory and we see our defeat. We see our weakness in his strength. Find comfort not in your own strength, but on the one who boldly declares to the high priest that he is the Christ, the Son of the Blessed, the Son of Man, seated at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Peter miserably failed his trial. But if you know the rest of the story, when Jesus rose from the dead, he said, go tell my disciples and Peter that I'm going before you into Galilee. That our failure in the face of opposition, should point us to the grace of Christ who restores us and redeems us and can use us as we stay humble and faithful to him. We may have failed our trial, but Christ was victorious in his. And as he stands in this trial, he's about to go to the cross. He's about to be lifted up for all to see and suffer and bleed and die. And people are going to walk by and mock him and say, you who destroyed the temple and built it in three days, save yourself. But isn't it such a wonderful truth that Jesus did not save himself because he was there to save us. In your failure, in your weakness, look to the victory of Christ who did everything for us. Let's pray. Lord, we see ourselves in Peter so many times. We thank you for including examples like this in Scripture that remind us of the weakness of our own flesh, our own tendency to deny you, to, to hide our allegiance to you, to save our own skins. Lord, I pray that you would give us your grace to stay true to who you are, to boldly declare, I am a follower of Christ. But Lord, even our weaknesses, we thank you, Lord, that you accomplished it for us, that you stood in our place so that we might find new life and grace only through you. We thank you for your victory.